Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have revealed yourself to this world and that by your spirit, you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus and in your word. And we pray, O oh God, that we might have an encounter with your son, Jesus, in your word. God, would you come among us and would you speak? Would you open eyes and hearts and ears and make us attentive, O oh God, to your presence and to your voice among us? And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So today we're going to be talking together about that miracle at Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. I was talking with one of my daughters last night and she asked me what I was going to be preaching on today. And I said, I'm going to be talking about that miracle where Jesus turned water into wine. And she said, you know, um, she said, what was that all about anyway? She said, it kind of looks like, you know, she says, you know, you look at the other miracles, Jesus giving sight to the blind or hearing to the deaf or maybe uh, allowing a guy who's paralyzed to walk again. And all of those miracles, they have this powerful, like transforming in for the person. But uh, what's up with this turning water into wine? She said, was Jesus just having some fun? You know, (laughs) is this kind of like his, uh, you know, is he just kind of getting warmed up? You know, he's getting ready to do all of his other miracles, and and this is his first miracle, and so it's kind of a warm-up miracle. What is this all about? So today we're going to be talking about this miracle, and uh, it starts in John chapter 2, verse 1, and it says this. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the encounter that we're looking at today takes place at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the text tells us that Jesus has been invited to this wedding. His mother is there. This is probably a family wedding. And his disciples were there. You'll remember that Jesus called his disciples from kind of the the surrounding villages just around Galilee. And Cana is in Galilee. So his disciples, no doubt, have some relationships. It's all a part of their social network. And so they go to this wedding. And uh, John gives us a timestamp as to when this occurred. Notice in the text he says that it was on the third day that they went to a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So John cues us to the number of days uh, throughout his gospel up to this point. It's kind of interesting. Uh, back in John chapter 1, verse, verse 19, he tells us about the first day that Uh, Jesus was introduced to John the Baptist. And then in verse 29, it says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him. So he's cueing us. He says, day one, they meet. The next day, there's this encounter. And then in verse 35, it says again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And then in verse 39, it cues us that there was another day. Uh, Some of these disciples stayed the night with Jesus. And then look what it says in verse 34 or 43 of chapter 1. It says, and the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So if you're counting the days up to this point, you have day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. And then it says, verse 1 of chapter 2, and on the third day... And we think, huh? 
you know, uh, does John not know how to do math, you know? That just doesn't add up, you know? But it, he's been very intentional about giving us the outlay of days. Now, some say perhaps it was the third day from the fifth day, and it was a three days journey perhaps from where Jesus was down in uh, Judea, maybe with John the Baptist, a third three day journey back to uh, Galilee, but which would actually put it on the eighth day, which is the first day of the week. But I think John is doing something more in the gospel when he speaks of the third day. Does the third day ring any bells for you? Does anybody in the room ever heard this phrase before, the third day? Of course, in the gospels and in the biblical imagination of these writers, the third day is resurrection day. It is that day when God's new creation broke in right into the middle of this old creation when Christ walked out of the tomb. We'll tuck that away and we'll come back to it in a little bit. So notice what it says, they're at this wedding and everything is going well and we imagine, you know, the music is pumping and uh, the food is being eaten and people are dancing and the wine is flowing and everything is going great, but then a crisis in the kitchen. Now, a little word about weddings in the first century. So weddings in the first century, they would go on for about a week. And the job of the groom and his family was to provide a lavish feast for a week-long celebration with the guests. I like that it was the groom and the groom's family that were responsible for this feast, not the bride's family. I like that I have four daughters. Also, in the ancient world, uh, the, the parents would arrange the marriages. I like that too. But he says this, uh, he says, you know, the, the, you, you're responsible. I mean, just imagine, you're responsible, you're the groom, you've got to prepare the food for, for the week, and there's a catering mistake, and you run out in the middle of the week uh, of food. I mean, just think about how you would feel. Think about how embarrassing that would be. But, uh, you know, you could imagine the in-laws saying, like, I told you you shouldn't have married that guy. He can't even get enough wine for the week. What's wrong with him, you know? And uh, for us today, of course, this, is a, this would be a mild embarrassment. But in the ancient world, it was an honor-shame culture. And this is a big deal. It's a tightly knit collectivist society. Hospitality is a chief virtue in a great wedding with good food and wine, it would be the talk of the town and it would bring great honor to you and to your family and to the bride and to her family for weeks and for months and for years on head. People would talk about that wedding. But on the other hand, if your wedding was a disaster, if the, ran, if the wine ran out or the food ran out, it would bring shame on you and your family for ages. And it would call into question your worth as a husband. You know, if you can't provide a feast for a week, how can you provide for a new wife? And we learned some uh, details a little bit later in the story about this family. There are six stone jars for purification, and there's a master of the banquets, kind of like a wedding coordinator, and there are servants. And so this is a quite a well-to-do family. But now they've been found out. They can't keep this party going. And it's going to bring disgrace and dishonor on the groom and on the family. And so look what happens next, verse 3. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Mary, probably she has some uh, official role at the wedding and she gets wind of the crisis back in the kitchen. And uh, so what does she do? Well, she probably does what she has done a whole lot in her life. You know, by this time, it's probably the case that Joseph, her husband, has died, maybe has been dead for, for several years. And so Mary has been doing what every good Jewish mother in the ancient world would do, is she would consistently look to her eldest son in order to provide help and answers when she was facing problems. And of course, Jesus would be the epitome of the reliable oldest son, wouldn't he? And so she goes to him and she says, son, they have no wine. But look at his response. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is a strange interaction, isn't it? It almost sounds a little bit harsh. You know, Jesus in this moment, he sounds so unchristlike, doesn't he? You know, I would never call my mom and say, woman, you know. Uh, and of course, this interaction shows the limits of that phrase, what would Jesus do? As a guide for your life, you know, middle school and high school students, if your mother asks you to clean your room, don't respond to her and say, woman, what does this have to do with me, my hour? <laughs> Actually, it's not as harsh as it seems. In the ancient world, this term woman could be used as a term of respect and honor. In fact, Jesus uses this in one of the most tender moments in the gospel when he's dying on the cross and he speaks to his mother uh, next to John, the beloved disciple, and he says, uh, you know, uh, woman, behold your son, you know, telling her that John now is going to take care of her. But then he says something, um, well, let me just say this. I, I think that when Jesus says, woman, my, uh, why, what is this to do with me? I think Jesus is doing something in this moment. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been under wraps and now he has just launched his public ministry. And I think maybe what Jesus is doing is he is doing something that often happens at some point as you grow into adulthood. You have to start differentiating yourself from your parents. And Jesus, in essence, I think is saying, now it is not your agenda, mom, that's going to set the direction of my life, but the agenda of my father who is in heaven. Jesus is the one who said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. But then he says something cryptic. He says, for my hour has not yet come. And we wonder, like, what, what do you mean, you know? And it, and it sounds a little bit like what he's saying, look, it's not my time to go public with who I am. But that doesn't really make sense because a little bit later in the story, he is going to go public with who he is and he's going to do this. But it also doesn't make sense because this phrase, my hour, is a technical phrase in the Gospel of John to refer to something very specific and particular. It refers to his passion and his cross. Which again is interesting. Why in this moment when she's asking about wine, does he bring up a, 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 a cryptic allusion to his cross? We'll tuck that away and we'll come back to it in a little bit. 
Well, look, look at what, what happens next. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's almost as if Jesus says, uh, woman, my hour has not yet come. And then maybe as he's turning and walking away, he just winks at her. And she goes over to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She knows he's going to come through for her. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. It says that there were six stone pots at this wedding for purification. And in the Jewish world, they would have these stone pots there at the beginning of the wedding so that the guests walking in could wash themselves. And it wasn't because they were fearful of germs. This is the first century. Germs had not yet been invented yet. And um, no, this... This was uh, a r for ritual purification. But nevertheless, these uh, pots would be full of dirty water from these washed hands. And Jesus tells the servants, go and take these pots that are marginally full with dirty water and fill them to the brim. And then take some out and take it to the master of the feast. And I just imagine the servants thinking like, what are you talking about? You know, we're going to give this water to the, to, the, to the master of the feast and he's going to get sick and he's going to laugh at us and think that we're mocking him. What do you mean go fill up these gallons, you know, these, but they, they go ahead and they do and they pull it in and they take it out and it's, it's wine and not just any wine. But it is the choicest wine. It is not two-buck chuck that you get at Trader Joe's. This is vintage, well-aged Galilean reserve. And it's not just a little. It is six stone pots full, you know, full of 30 gallons each. And if you do the math, six times 30, 180 gallons of the choicest Galilean reserve. I'm glad I'm not a Baptist preacher. I'd have a heart attack trying to explain it all to you. <laughs> but look at the master of the feast. Look at his response. Now, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, actually in the original language, it is when the people are buzzed. He's like, when, when the people are kind of a little bit inebriated and they're not really tasting the nuance of the wine anymore, he says, then they turn out the cheap stuff. He says, but not you, son. Son, you have saved the best for last. You know, did you notice in the text who gets the credit for this wine? It's not Jesus, it's the groom. You know, the chief steward assumes it's the groom. The wedding guests assume it's the groom. The bride's parents are now very impressed with this groom. And so get this, the groom is on a brink of social disaster that would carry him, that he would carry with him for the rest of his life. And he has done nothing at all to solve this problem. And without doing anything, he has gone from zero to hero, you know, from being disgraced in front of everyone to being honored for bringing out the choicest reserved wine last without knowing how it had happened. And we stand back and we just ask, what is this story about anyway? You know, what is Jesus doing 
You know, the, the, the opening lines of John's gospel tells us that by him all things were made. And now Jesus, the Lord of creation, marshals all of his divine creative power for what purpose? To save a young couple on the brink of social disaster. And what, what's even more interesting is this is Jesus's inaugural miracle. And just think about it for a moment. If you were going to launch a new brand or maybe uh, launch out on a new enterprise or start a new business, or, or maybe you were a politician who was about ready to, to launch a new political campaign, you would be sure that your very opening statement, the very first thing that you did would have to be very carefully crafted in order to capture the very quintessential, you know, essence of your message. And here, what is Jesus doing at, for his inaugural miracle? As he is launching out, what is he doing? He is creating 180 gallons of wine. You know, he doesn't raise someone from the dead. He doesn't heal a sick person. He doesn't preach a sermon. He doesn't call anyone into discipleship. What does he do? He produces 180 gallons of the best wine to keep a party going. And that's his first miracle. And we just wonder, like, what does this mean? And what are we supposed to make of this? Well, I want you to notice in the text, it says that this was a sign. He says, this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and it manifested his glory. And so do you see what's happening here? Jesus is doing something very intentional. He is seeking to make a statement about who he is and why he came. And he is using this miracle, this transformation of water into wine to put us all on notice who he is and what he has come to do. And so he says, this is a sign. It's a sign that's supposed to point beyond itself to something else. And what is that something else it is supposed to point to? Well, you know what happens, right, in your life. The wine runs out. And all we got are some stone pots only marginally full of dirty water. You know, at some point in our lives, all of us reach an end of our own resources. And it might come early or it might come late, but I think all of us in this room knows what it's like to at one point feel very confident in yourself and in your abilities and in your competencies and what you're planning on doing. And then at some point, have the rug pulled out from under you and not know which way is up. You know, for some of you, you know, you, you might have been presenting well, you have kept and maintained your image before other people, but behind the scenes, behind closed doors in secret, you have got that addiction and it has become unmanageable and it is, you have become powerless over it and it's starting to show and you don't know what to do. Or maybe, you know, for years, uh, you did good with, with your boys you know, you, you read all of the parenting books and they were well-trained. And now as your teenage son reaches into his late adult years and he's engaging in this destructive behavior and you just don't know what to do. Or maybe your marriage is just falling apart. 
And, you know, it seemed like it was okay and you could get by day to day, but now you just, you don't know if you can keep this together. But I think all of us at some point in our life has experienced the wine run out and we just are like, man, I don't got anything. I don't got anything but a few marginally full jars of dirty water. But here's the good news of this text. Here's the good news of this, of this story. At the end of human resource is the resource of God. At the end of your own power and your own ability to find freedom or to live another day or to forgive when you feel like you cannot forgive any longer, at the end of your human resources is the resource and the transforming power of the grace of God. And here in this story, Jesus marshals all of the power of creation, you know, this extraordinary power to work on behalf of an ordinary person in his ordinary life facing a very ordinary problem. And Jesus is saying, this is what I do. This is why I have come. I have come in order to bring my transforming power to bear on your individual lives. I have come to turn your water into wine. I have come to bring my own transforming grace to be at work in your life. And if this is true, then do you know what this means? It means that you and I need to do what Mary did. We need to bring our problems and our needs to Jesus. Tim Keller said, when it comes to God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. You think, I, I don't got much. I, I don't have anything left. When it comes to the grace of God you need in your life right now, all you need is need. So bring your problems, bring your need to Jesus. Now, I recognize that that often is just the first step. There are other steps you need to take. You know, you might need to go to marriage counseling and it might take a long time. And you might, you might need to get a therapist or you might need to go to celebrate recovery or, or you might need to get in a community with people who can support you and be alongside of you. And there are all kinds of steps you can take, but the very first step, the foundational step you can take without which you cannot go anywhere else is to bring your own heart and your problems and your needs to Jesus. As Hebrews 4 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. And then he says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now that's not to say that you don't carry any responsibility. It's not to say you just need to let go and let God. No, you carry responsibility. And what's your responsibility? Well, your, your responsibility is to listen to Mother Mary. You know, in the times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. What does she say here, though? It's the one phrase we get from, from Mary in her adult life. She says, do everything Jesus tells you. 
Turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. You know, abandon the objectification of the opposite sex. You know, seek to reconcile rather than maintain anger. Don't do your deeds of righteousness before people. Trust God with your resources and give it away. Live into the practice of the Christian life. Do everything Jesus has told you. You have responsibility, but at the end of the day, not everything depends upon your ability to walk into that responsibility. Ultimately, the Christian life is a life lived in dependence upon the grace and upon the power and the mercy of God. So he says, come and bring your problems to me. Come to me and lay it down at my feet. So what is this story telling us? Well, number one, I think it's telling us that when you are faced with your own crisis, bring it to Jesus and find in him an infinite ocean of power and grace to work in your life and do for you what you need to be done. But I think this story is saying something else. I think Jesus is getting at something else in the story. Notice again, this is a sign. And it's interesting because in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. John says there, there isn't enough of, for, all of the, for all of the deeds of the, of, that Jesus did to be contained in all of the books of the world. Jesus says there is, or John says there was so much that Jesus did. But in his gospel, he identifies seven very pertinent, very specific, very carefully arranged examples of what Jesus did, seven signs that Jesus did in order that we might know why he has come and that we might entrust ourselves to him. And this is the first of the seven signs. The seventh sign is the resurrection from the dead. And it is no accident that John says that this miracle occurred on the third day on Resurrection Day. And I think what John is getting at is that here in the miracle at Cana of turning water into wine, we get a glimpse, we get an enacted parable, a lived parable of all that Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come into this world not only to touch us individually and to turn our individual water into wine, Jesus has come into this world to transform all things and to bring festival joy into all of creation. You know, in the Old Testament, there are these visionary prophets that paint a picture of what happens when God will ultimately come. And so, for example, in Isaiah 25, one of my favorite texts in all of the Old Testament, it says that one day, one day on this mountain, God is going to throw a grand eternal feast. He's going to throw a great dinner party. It's as if the ancient prophet is saying, you want to know what eternity is like. Think about the greatest dinner party you have ever been to the greatest meal you have ever enjoyed, the best glass of wine you have ever tasted, the, the, the richest group of friends you have ever been with, the best live music that was ever playing, and multiply that by infinity. And he says, this is eternity. This is where the universe is headed. It's headed to this eternal party. And he says, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be supplied this grand banquet. And on that day, 
he says he will provide a big feast with the choicest of meats and the best wine. A little bit later in the prophets, it says that the day is coming where the hills will drip with wine. And don't misunderstand it. That's not because the prophets are in to getting people drunk. It's because in the ancient Israelite imagination, wine was the primal symbol for joy. And it was to say that ultimately where God is taking all of creation is to a feast of eternal joy. And so what Jesus is saying in this text, you know, there is the master of the feast who tastes, you know, the wine and says, oh, you've saved the best for last. But in our story, Jesus is saying, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the true Lord of the feast. I am the eternal life of the cosmic party. And I have come to bring the universe into festival joy. There's this great scene in uh, The Lord of the Rings, the very last episode, where after uh, Sam and Frodo have destroyed the ring of power in the mountains of Mount Doom, they come back and they had thought Gandalf was dead and, and they awake from this long nightmare of throwing the, the ring into the, the fires of Mount Doom and they open their eyes and standing before them is the wizard Gandalf. And Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And listen, because God raised Jesus from the dead, everything sad will come untrue. God is going to flood creation with festival joy. In other words, God is not simply interested. God is not simply interested in meeting your needs so that you're, you're not, you know, you're just above you know, the level of struggle and pain. God is interested ultimately in bringing us and all of creation into festival joy, eternal joy, inexpressible and full of glory. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with food and, and sex and ambition and infinite, when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant to the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not trying to invite you into a overly optimistic view of reality where we go around pretending like everything is just fine when deep down inside we are crushed and we're in pain and we are hurting, we have been betrayed or we have been let down or we just feel lost or we're depressed. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that there's not a place for that. I'm not saying that to enter into joy, you need to deny reality. What I am saying is that there is a truer and a more eternal reality than our temporal experience of pain and suffering right now. And that true eternal weight far outweighs any suffering and pain we're going through. It was Maya Angelou who said, we need joy as we need air. 
Or as the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, it is joy that is rooted in a deep and an abiding hope that enables us to actually walk through the pain and difficulties of life. And again, this isn't trite. This isn't about denial. This is about living with joy and holding on to hope in the midst of a world of suffering. Mother Teresa put it like this. She said, joy is prayer. Joy is strength. Joy is love. Joy is a net of love by which you can catch souls. God loves a cheerful giver. She gives most who gives with joy. The best way to show our gratitude to God and to the people is to accept everything with joy. A joyful heart is the inevitable result of a heart burning with love. Never let anything so fill you with sorrow as to make you forget the joy of the Christ who is risen. Again, she is saying there is a truer and a deeper reality that we can live out of, and that is the reality of the resurrection. Or we could put it like this. You know, earlier Jesus said in the text, my hour has not yet come. But soon enough, his hour would come. Soon enough, Christ would plunge himself into the depths of God-forsakenness and pain walking with us and beside us in all of our deep valleys. And Christ on the cross would drink to the full dregs the cup of God-forsakenness and suffering for our sakes and in our stead so that he might welcome us to the eternal banquet of joy where we could share in the choicest of wine that eternal joy that he has come to bring us. And that is very, very good news. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. And God, you find us today in so many different places. Some of us are hurt and we are walking through a deep valley. Some of us are filled with gratitude and life just seems like everything is going well. Some of us feel lost, we don't even know which way is up. Some of us feel enslaved and hopeless. I pray, oh God, that wherever you might find us, that you would draw us out of that place to yourself where we can find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. God, would you renew our hope today? Would you restore our joy today? Even as we walk through those deep valleys, God, would you help us to draw upon your eternal bank of joy and to live out of the reality of the resurrection. God, help us to live as third-day people. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who turns all of our water into wine. Amen.